This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. I've got a great interview for you again today, Art Curious listeners. This time I'm featuring a conversation with Julia Voss on her wonderful book, Hilma of Clint, a biography, which was released recently in its English translation. The Swedish painter Hilma of Klint was 44 years old when she broke with the academic tradition in which she had been trained to produce a body of radical, abstract works the likes of which had never been seen before. Today, it is widely accepted that of Klint was one of the earliest abstract academic painters in Europe. But this is only part of her story. Not only was she a working female artist, she was also an avowed clairvoyant and mystic. Like many of the artists at the turn of the 20th century who developed some version of abstract painting, Off Clint studied theosophy, which holds that science, art, and religion are all reflections of an underlying life form that can be harnessed through meditation, study, and experimentation. Well before Kandinsky, Mondrian, and Malevich declared themselves the inventors of abstraction, Off Clint was working in a non-representational mode producing a powerful visual language that continues to speak to audiences today. Despite her current enormous popularity, there has not yet been a biography of Af Klint until now. Julia Voss is a German art historian, art critic, and former art editor, and she recently joined me on a Zoom call to discuss this highly anticipated biography and Hilma Af Klint's astounding life. Julia Voss, welcome to Art Curious. Hello. Hi, Jennifer. Good to be here. Happy to have you. And I was so excited to be able to have you on the show to talk about the wonderful Hilma of Clint. So I think like many, many of us, at least here in the U.S., I think Hilma of Clint really burst first upon my radar with the exhibition at the Guggenheim in New York in late 2018. So I confess that I was a little bit late to the game in learning about her until that point. But I gather that it wasn't so for you. When did you first hear about Hilma of Clint? When did her work first make an impression on you? Oh, that was actually 10 years before the Guggenheim show. I mean, the Guggenheim show is a game changer, no question. And I saw it and it was beautiful. And it really, you know, was a landmark exhibition for the reception of Hilma of Clint. But I ran into her works the first for the first time in 2008. And back then I was still an editor with Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, which is a big daily newspaper in Germany, one of the leading newspapers. And I flew to Stockholm in order to cover another exhibition. And I went to the Moderna Museet and I was accompanied by Iris Müller-Westermann, who back then was a curator at the Moderna Museet. And she was the one who did the big Hilma Afklin show in 2013. So she guided me through the museum and they had two works on loan by Hilma of Klint. And I remember I walked into this room and the, the two works were from the Swan series. And I was completely 
taken by them. I was really like, you know, what is this and where does it come from? Because I, I have no idea when it was done and who made it and what it belongs to. They had such a made such a strong impression of me. And then Iris told me a little bit about Hema Afklind, um, a little bit about her story. And I was I was uh, happy and shocked at the same time, because on the one hand, I was happy to meet an artist I didn't know before, because it's always great to stumble into something new and to make to make a discovery. Um, but on the other hand, I was also angry because I thought, you know, how could it be that this person, this artist is so completely unknown to me and not only to me, but to a larger audience and, you know, to art historians in general. So Ever since I set out to find out more about Hilma of Clint, but also to find out more about why she was so sidelined by art history for such a long time. Absolutely. And I feel like that's something that I love to talk about and mull over on my own show. But why do you think that she did stay under, you know, far, so far under the radar for so long? What is it about her? And why, in contrast to so many other female artists from the 20th century, was she out of the limelight? I mean, it's, yeah, that's a very good question. And I wish there was a very easy answer to it, but <laughs> it's not that easy. I think, I mean, one important point is she's a woman, but you said, also said there are other women from sort of that time that have become, you know, that got recognition. So there must be more to that story. And I think one thing is that she really challenges the canon and the story, how it has been told. You know, you cannot go on telling the, the history of abstraction in the same manner and just, you know, placing her somewhere. She was very early with her abstraction. She started doing her abstract paintings already in 1906. And that sort of blows up the entire story of abstraction as starting in 1910, 11 with Kandinsky and then later with um, Malevich and Mondrian. So in a way, if you take her in, it's clear you have to retell the story, how it has been told. So I think that's one important factor. The other important factor is, I think, that the history of abstraction was told or made in retrospect. It was told in the Cold War, um, and it was told by men who were interested in retelling that story of abstraction as the history of, you know, some very talented and um, singularly minded individuals, male individuals. And in this picture, Hima Af Klint cannot be separated from her spiritual practice. And she brings in an element that people were very eager to exclude from the history abstractions. So although Kandinsky was also, also very much interested in spiritual ideas, he read the same authors, he was talking about this in his writings, that's something that got excluded from the history abstraction when the story was being told in the Cold War. So I think with Hilma Afklint, all the elements everybody was so eager to keep outside that story suddenly rushed back in. And then I think because she was a woman, she was easy to exclude because there was the prejudice like, you know, um, that women women's achievement was something that art history doesn't really have to deal with. And they just put her aside. I completely agree with you, and I completely see that. And I've read even in the last few years since that 
2018 Guggenheim show, I've seen some critics and even just some people online talking about how her work can't necessarily be called abstract and fighting over what abstract might even mean as as if they're trying to still further push her away so that we can continue with that Kandinsky narrative that you're speaking of, keeping Kandinsky and Mondrian and so forth in those top positions. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. What about her? Tell us a little bit about her abstract works, especially beginning in 1906. What makes them abstract? How did they come about? Yeah, um, I think that's a very good observation. Um, I think that sort of, in a way, this discussion was taken further by the Guggenheim show. That's why it was so important to have this show, because before that, it was actually, I think there were a lot of people, art historians around, who tried to sort of keep her away from that abstract canon and say, you know, she might be interesting, but she's an artist in her, you know, in her own right, and she doesn't necessarily belong to that canon. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with Hilma Afklin, we have to look back at what, what do we call abstract? She was a trained painter when she started. I mean, she was born in Stockholm and she was lucky enough to be able to study at a academy, a state academy, a royal academy in Stockholm. So she got the regular training of a painter at an academy and was a professional artist until the early 20th century. And then um, from 1906 onwards, when she was 44 years old, actually, she just, you know, started an entire new oeuvre. And she started with a series in November, so about sort of this time of the year. In November in 1906, that was called um, Primordial Chaos. And that was a series of pretty small canvases. And they had, some of them were purely abstract with, you know, just colors, a lot of blues, yellows, greens shimmering on the canvas and just abstract forms like lines, curves, things that seem to explode, rays and so forth. And some of them, but still have also representative, um, uh, representational forms like roses, like um, the shells of snails and so forth. And she moves on from that, from that series, she produces afterwards one series after the other. And she switches back and forth between abstract forms and representational canvases. And there's always a development, that's why it's a series, and it always develops from something um, that's concrete into something that's very abstract and that doesn't resemble anything that we can see in our daily life or is not just a symbol of something, but just sort of abstract composition. At the same time, abstraction is not a word she uses. She would use descriptions as spiritual. Um, she would talk of her paintings as messages. I think we can see them as portals that open up to um, higher dimensions, but she's not using the same vocabulary, let's say, as Kandinsky did when he did his paintings. Nevertheless, I would say when Kandinsky talks about abstract art, he means spiritual art. So he talks also about Franz Marc, one of his fellow painters in the group of the Blue Rider, the Blaue Reiter. He talks about him as an abstract painter, and he means he's a spiritual painter because, you know, for example, we have animals on the canvas but they are sort of 
you know, higher forms of animals. They are meant to be something that represents the the nature of the animal and not sort of a specific animal. And I think that's it's that's what is important to keep in mind that for Kandinsky, often abstraction and spiritual is the same term. And for him, I would say that's the same thing. I think for her, abstraction or abstract painting is the kind of natural representation of higher dimensions. I'm glad that you brought that up. And I'm thinking about this idea of spirituality and the other dimensions. You mentioned that we seem to ping pong back and forth between discussing her art on that aesthetic level. But just as important is that philosophical or spiritual background here. And I think that's so combined and conflated. So could you tell us a little bit, what was her connection to spiritualism and or theosophy? How did she get involved in this world and these ideas? And how did they affect her artwork? Yeah, that's a very important question. So Hilma Afklin, as I said, she was trained as a painter. She became a professional painter. But very early on, she moved in spiritual circles and circles that would do seances. Women would sit down together at a table um, and then practice a kind of automatic drawing that was connected with higher forces. So the idea was that they put themselves into a state that higher forces, higher dimensions, higher intelligences would guide them while they were doing this. And they would note down text and they would produce drawings, multiple drawings, one must say. So and that started in the 1890s. She first joined a circle called Edelweiss. Verbundet. And then much more important was this next circle, which was called the Five. And there she was in a group of five women who would meet regularly for seances and producing these automatic drawings and texts. And then she continued to be with the Five for almost, actually for more than a decade, and then dropped out with her best friend, Anna Kassel, in order to embark on this new project, which she called the Paintings for the Temple. And then there was a kind of refiguration in her environment, and she started a new circle that eventually became a circle of 13 female friends. So it was really a large community of female friends um, who met. And they carried on for quite a while until, again, in the late 1910s, Hilma Afklind would basically stick to one very close woman called um, Anderson, who would um, be her lifelong partner and lover then. So she moved in a large female community. There were also intense relations in these communities, also physical relations in these communities. And all of them were interested in spiritual movements. And these two, I think the two most important spiritual movements, not only for Hilma Afklin, but in Europe in general, were the movements of theosophy and anthroposophy. Theosophy was founded by a woman, co-founded by a woman, by uh, Helena Blavatsky. Anthroposophy was kind of a branch that came out of theosophy and was then put into its own movement by um, Rudolf Steiner. And they produced a lot of books and texts that also Hema Afklin would have in her library, read and study. And she took a lot of, I think, um, ideas from there, which were also around in her community. And I think basically, I think in order 
for us to understand what they were interested in, it's important to say that this was really a time of change. So around 1900 in the natural sciences, you would have all kind of new discoveries. And these new discoveries would describe things that were formerly not visual, not uh, could not be seen. They were invisible. Um, so all these invisible rays, for example, were uh, discovered like X-rays, like telegraphs, like radioactivity, for example. And all these forces could suddenly be seen and measured and detected and be made visible. And before they, they were unseen. And I think that kind of triggered um, a euphoria that... You know, now we know radioactivity, tomorrow we can communicate with the other dimensions and maybe even with the dead. So there's also this anecdote that Bell was about to invent a telephone that could community that could communicate with the dead and he called that spirit phone. So people were excited about these new discoveries and really thought, you know, there is this large world of unseen things, of invisible things that we can now enter. And I think a lot of artists, and that included Hilma Afkin, but Kandinsky would also be a case, believed that they had, if you want to say, feelers or organs that could also trace these invisible forces and that they didn't necessarily need a machine for doing that, but they could rely on their intuition, on their capacity to open up, on their ability to connect with other worlds so that's i think that's an idea that was very important in theosophy and also very important in anthroposophy and that's something that him afklin cultivated a lot was that something that she continued to cultivate throughout her life or was it something that she eventually let go as she aged and progressed no actually that's something she sticked to and i it went through different waves i would say but in her notebooks from early on, we have the notebooks, they're all in the Hilma Afklin Foundation, and we have a lot of notebooks. So it's 10,000s of pages. It's over 120 notebooks. In her notebooks, records these messages starting in the 1890s. And, you know, I think even her last message in her last notebook before she dies in 1944 is a message she receives. So this kind of mediumistic practice and this being in connection with the higher forces is something that carried on throughout her life. I'm very glad that you mentioned her notebooks because that was something that I really wanted to ask you about was your process for writing and researching this biography. I know that it was rather extensive, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you ended up teaching yourself Swedish to undertake it. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, I had a wonderful Swedish teacher here in Berlin who helped me with learning Swedish and also with reading the notebooks because it's one thing to understand and read Swedish and the other thing is to understand sort of occult Swedish of the 19th century. So I was very happy to have him um, at my side, Tommy Lindqvist. Um, yes, but I learned Swedish for that. That's incredible. I know this took you, obviously, a few years to write, obviously, because of all the material. While you were going through these notebooks and other surviving documents, other archival elements, were there? what were the surprises? What were the things, if any, that really stuck out to you when you were uncovering the details of her life? Oh, gosh, there were so many surprises. Um, I think sort of small and big surprises. It all started with a surprise because... 
Um, I remember the first time I went to the archive, Johann Afklint, um, the grandnephew, took me there in 2017. Um, when I went to the archive, I came across a notebook, the very small notebooks with drawings in it from a travel, and it was um, titled Italian um, Travel. And I thought, oh gosh, what is this? Because I'd never known, I'd, I've never been told that she traveled to Italy. So I asked Johann Afklin, what do you think? Did she travel to Italy? And he said, I don't know. So I went to Florence actually to trace down the places she drew, she sketched in her notebook, and I found these places. So from then on, I thought, you know, if she even traveled to Italy and nobody knew about it, what else did she do? We don't know about it. So it's all started with a surprise for me. And then I think sort of, a big surprise was how large the community was she moved in. As I said, it was a large community of spiritual women, women and sort of it changed over the years. So they were different women and it was a very lively and um, queer community she was part of. And there was a lot of passion and broken hearts and collaboration in that community. That was also interesting to see. But I think sometimes it's also small things that I stumbled over that really sort of changed my perspective. One thing, for example, is that at some point I found a note that she went to the movies in 1913. She went to the movies to see with a female friend and lover. Um, she went to the movies to see Quo Vadis in um, Stockholm, which is a large historical movie on a love story that is took place in ancient Rome. And this idea of Hilma Afklin sitting in a cinema in Stockholm and watching that movie, that is really something I sort of thought, okay, I have to think about how I how I write about her because, you know, there's this cliche of someone who's spiritual that you you know, you might picture this person as someone who's very withdrawn and sort of isolated and only, I don't know, only interested in connecting with higher forces and not taking part in sort of daily life. And that's completely not true for her. So she's the kind of person who would communicate with the higher forces and then jump on uh, a train and then go to the movies and then call a friend. So I loved that was that. something nice too understand. I loved that because it really felt like you were getting that sensation that she was a human, you know, she was involved, yeah. as you mentioned, in, in both of these realms and really living her life. And I appreciate that. And I'm so glad because I neglected to mention at the beginning of our interview that yours is the first biography about this artist who is, you know, hugely famous and, and very popular now throughout the world. But I agree with you in that I feel like this the the spiritual connection to her work makes some people feel like maybe it's all head in the clouds and all very ethereal. Yeah. And your book is able to prove that that is not necessarily the only case, at least. I really appreciated that. Yes. And I must say that was also a discovery for me because in the beginning, I wasn't attracted by all this spiritual talk, I have to say. To the contrary, I thought in the beginning, oh, no, you know, here we have an outstanding artist and she receives messages from higher forces and um, is commissioned in a way to do this work. So I thought, you know, this is a disappointment. I want her to be, <laughs> I don't know, an individual that sort of decides what she is doing. 
So in the beginning, I really pretty much concentrated on finding the places where she went to, the kind of artists she was connected with, the books she read, everything that's kind of historical. But the more I learned Swedish and the more I was able to understand and read her notebooks, I discovered that this communication with the higher forces was no one-way street. It was a dialogue, and that's the beauty of it. So it's not like there were sort of um, voices that would say, you know, do this and do that, and tomorrow, you know, do this and do that again. But it was they would make offers, and she would accept. Sometimes she would also say, I don't know, I have to think about it. Mm -hmm. So it was a dialogue, and sort of messages were traveling in both directions. When I understood this I was much more open to explore her spiritual experiences and it's also nice to see how much she got support from there so they're often very much like friends the voices she hears and they congratulate her on her work and say you know you've done you've done a great accomplishment and it's fantastic and if you would understand how great it is you would probably kneel down and everything so in a way they're often her best friends and they are there for her when you know people in her environment not necessarily supported her. There's more coming up next, right after this break. Want to listen ad-free? Join Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee. Visit patreon.com slash artcurious, and we will be right back. A few years ago, I began composting in my backyard. But has it been easy? Ugh, I wish. My family is constantly fretting about the composition of green waste versus brown matter. I wonder if I'm throwing in too many coffee grounds or too many banana peels, not enough cardboard. In short, I love composting, but doing it was actually way more complicated than I had expected. But then I got a Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. With the push of a button, my food scraps, even those mystery containers of takeout that are languishing in the back of my fridge, are all gone, all done, without mess, smell, and when it runs, it's quieter than my dishwasher, and it feels good too. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage, and that means I'm not going to send things to landfills that produce extra methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed back to my plants. I have way less garbage, I'm minimizing my carbon footprint personally, and I'm helping to grow my garden with less effort, confusion, and mess. If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com artcurious and use the promo code artcurious to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to L-O-M-I dot com slash art curious and use promo code art curious at checkout food waste is gross let Lomi save you a cold trip out to the garbage can when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. 
with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What were her intentions? And also, I just want to talk a little bit about her process as well. I'm thinking about things like paintings for the temple, like you mentioned earlier. What was the thought process? How much of that was that collaboration between her her spiritual guides, her voices? And what was her thought about if and when and how these works would be shown? Her intentions were big, large. (laughs) They were really, you know, not modest. So one thing is, I mean, you mentioned that sort of her work was done in a mediumistic manner. I think this is important to understand in exchange with sort of the higher dimensions that talk to her. And they were also done in a collaborative manner. So she was always surrounded by women who would support her in different ways. Sometimes they would also jump in and help painting, but they would also support her mentally and in exploring the themes she was interested in. So it was a collaborative collaborative process and she writes about this a lot and a lot of sort of different women produce the notebooks that are in the Hilma of Pin Foundation. I think this is important to understand. The what she wanted to do with that I mean that's yeah that's a very important question. So she produced this large cycle called the paintings for the temple and it consists of 193 paintings in different series. Um, And they were done between 1906 and 1915. And in the long run, she wanted to have a real temple for her paintings for the temple. And this temple she thought of as a real center for a new movement that would eventually help us to get away from binary thinking, from materialism, and from starting over new, from having... You know, it it should really encourage her work and the temple and her writings also should encourage us to have new thoughts and new feelings. That's also very important, not just sort of one side of mankind, but, you know, both sides, feeling and thoughts. So in a way, she was a revolutionary mystic who really wanted to reform the way we moved and in this world and how we looked at this world. And one shouldn't forget that she experienced two world wars. I mean, she died in 1944 when the Second World War was still going on. But um, yeah, there was also the First World War. And I think although Sweden was neutral and wasn't taking part in the in the fights, still this experience of a big world war that would destroy so many lives was something that really deeply troubled her and that made for her, I think, the the need to have a new starting point even more important. And that's what she believed she would provide with her work. Given all that, especially these these grand, wonderful ambitions, I know that there was a a request that her works not be shown until 20 years after her death. Why was or what was her hopes in waiting that period of time, do you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's that's well put. What were her hopes? Because I think one one reason was that she was kind of exhausted at this point. That's in the early 1930s. She is almost 70 years old. She has accomplished this great work and she has tried many, many times to find an audience, uh, to find an exhibition space, to find a building, to find people who would support her 
in showing this work and spreading this work in finding an audience. And she had done many things. She traveled to Dornach, uh, to Switzerland, in order to talk to Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Anthroposophy, in order to convince him to show her work in his building, his temple in Dornach, Switzerland. And she failed to convince him. She traveled to Amsterdam in order to find sort of comrades in arms for her project. She even traveled to London in order to show her work. She took part in a conference and uh, made an exhibition with her paintings. And every time she was rejected. I mean, I think the big legend that Steiner really put her down and so on, that's a legend. But nevertheless, I think he kept her at a distance and would not agree to have his temple to be her temple. So he kept her at a distance and did not, you know, become a partner in, in the common project. So all this was done by her. She was already almost 70 years old. And then there are the early 1930s. And that's when she decides that her work should not be shown for 20 years after her death. And I think one reason is exhaustion, the feeling that she can't, you know, that she can't fight anymore for for finding an audience. But the other thing is, as you put it, is hope, is realizing that she, the, the 30s were not a time for starting something new. The, the 30s became sort of, in Europe, a very dark time. And her idea was that future generations would be much more open and much more understanding of what she was trying to do. And in a way, it would be a pity if her sort of present generation, her the people of her time would have the last word on, on her work. So that's why she kind of catapulted her work in to the future generation and gave it as a gift to them, knowing that it would be in much better hands. I think that is so forward thinking of her. And, and you know, I think we can spin the narrative as saying, you know, I think some people would think that that's just shelving things because you've lost hope. But this idea that it was actually the opposite, that she had hope that future generations would accept and would understand. I think that is so beautiful. And obviously, I think it's paid off massive dividends at this point just because of yeah. so many people. And I... First of all, I wanted to say this is off subject, but I loved that you had that index in the back of your book that showed her travels and talked about how much she moved around. Because, again, I think you've really helped open up the fact that she was not this mystical, stationary person who just living Mm -hmm. on her own, but she really traveled. And I really loved finding how much she fought for her presentation of her works in the art world. Mm -hmm. I think that is quite wonderful. Heading back into our current times now, how has the art world changed in your perspective since Hilma of Klint has made the splash in the last decade or decade and a half? What has changed, if anything, in acceptance of her works and also in the art world in general, do you think? Huh, good question. Big Um, question, I know. (laughs) Big question. I mean, as I said, I think the fact that the Guggenheim did this big retrospective really meant a lot. Not only, I mean, it was beautifully done by Tracy Bashkov. It was a stunning show. But I think also in terms of authority, the Guggenheim Museum has was founded as a museum for abstract art by uh, Hiller von Riebe, 
actually also in the 1930s she came up with this idea so it's it's a great parallel to um, Hilma of Klint's thinking also there are many parallels with the building of the Guggenheim Museum yes. and the temple Hilma of Klint designed both had this kind of spiral idea and everything so there are a lot of connections but I think also in terms of authority it's important that an institution like the Guggenheim Museum embraces her and actually says you know we welcome her to the canon and then it's much more difficult to exclude her. And I think also now the Museum of Modern Art, they have bought works that have come up on the market, which is very rare because usually all the works belong to the Hilma of Klint Foundation. And for example, the paintings for the temple, they can't be sold. Um, Hilma of Klint stipulated that in her testament. They have to stay together and they so they can't be sold and nobody has the intention of selling them Fantastic. but so every now and then sort of there are works that she produced after that or gave to private people um and so there are some museums that have recently bought things and one of them is the uh, is the museum of modern art another one is glenstone a private museum they yes. have bought a series the beautiful tree of knowledge series so that's also now in a museum that can be publicly um visited which is beautiful and I think I mean in general there is much more awareness for women that have been sidelined in the art world so that's a huge movement and I think a lot of institutions are in the process of a real transformation really thinking about sort of what have we left outside sort of in terms of gender in terms of ethnicity in terms of color and so forth so um that's a beautiful process that, that has started. And I think also um, people are a lot more open, and that's not only the art world, a lot more open to spiritual individual, spiritual experiences. So a lot of people practice yoga or I, you know, some kind of meditation. And the idea that you know there could be something as spiritual encounters is not as alien as it was back when Hilma Afklin produced her paintings. And let's not forget, she was in a strictly Protestant country mm. with a Protestant state church. And they would not at all welcome that kind of experience. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you, you led me perfectly into this, which is really my last question, which is what makes her such an important artist for us today? Because thinking about the fact that that Guggenheim exhibition broke records for the most attended mm -hmm. in the exhibition, or, uh, the institution's history. And people were having such not only intellectual, but emotional responses and spiritual responses to seeing the show. Why is she such a touchstone for us now? I think the beauty of her work is really that it's, it's a building with many entrances. And I think that makes it so compelling for a lot of different people. I mean, one thing is, I think that the bait, the, the you know, the most important thing people go for is in the beginning is the work itself. I mean, it's yes. stunning. It's beautiful. It's huge. It's immersive. I mean, it's not like you you feel like you're surrounded by it and you're drawn into it. And I think they're also different. That was something she was very much aware of, you know, a lot of she that she did it in that size is something very unusual for a woman in that time. And I think she was also aware that in a way it's a very peculiar perspective you have in these paintings it's you know it could be something that is seen 
from above. It could be something that is very tiny. It could be something that is very huge. So it could be the cosmos, the universe, or it could be something you see through a microscope. So you have, at the same time, you have the impression you look through a telescope and a microscope and you experience something you're part of or something that sucks you in. So it's it's really, it's a very special experience. So, and every time I'm able to see the works, I I have tears in my eyes. I have to admit, yes. even today, and I've seen a lot of him after in shows, and it's always overwhelming. But the other thing is also that her story offers a possibility of entrance for a lot of different kind of people. So, I mean, one thing is there is this woman that was sidelined by art history or sort of made invisible by art history and her time, and she's coming back with full force. That's something a lot of women <laughs> like to hear. Then she was such a peculiar character who would really shape the world she lived in with her friends. So they had this large female queer community. They lived in and sort of, and they were really able to craft the environment they would work and live in. And I think this is also something that's exceptional and that connects with a lot of people today. Then there's this thing that she had these grand views and wouldn't uh, and would insist in, on it, even though it was difficult. This kind of endurance and never losing um, willpower and hope is also something that people connect to. And I think also this idea that she is a great artist also, although she didn't do well in the art market, is something that people find interesting. I think... The art market is huge and there are very few who are successful and Hima Afint belongs to the part of the art market or of the art world that was never successful in terms of art market, but still is now seen as a very important and influential artist today. And I think this is also something that gives people hope. I think there's something to love about her for pretty much anyone. I love yeah. that you mentioned that there's so many different entryways or portals into her work. I think that there truly is something for everyone. And I'm so grateful that you have helped to open up her story to us and make her more accessible and that we can actually learn about her life for the first time. So, Julia Voss, thank you so much for being on Art Curious today and for chatting about this incredible book and this incredible artist with me. Thank you so much, Jennifer, and thank you for your great questions. It was a great pleasure talking to you. I would love to speak with you anytime. <laughs> thank you. So thank do I. You. Thank you for listening to my interview today with Julia Voss about Hilma Af Klint, a biography. As usual, if you want to learn more about this and buy a copy for yourself, I have included links to the book for Amazon and Bookshop in today's show notes and on my website, artcuriouspodcast.com. As usual, please keep in touch with me. I can be found easily on Instagram and on my website, artcuriouspodcast.com. And I will be back with you soon with more episodes of Art Curious, more bonus episodes of Art Curious News this week, and future interviews. Thank you so much for listening, supporting, and stay curious.